It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Egg Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world and covering their secrets to success. This week, I have the pleasure of introducing Cullen Roach, founder and chief investment officer at Discipline Funds. He founded Discipline Funds to help investors obtain access to low-fee, diversified portfolios that help them meet their financial goals. Cullen is also the founder of Pragmatic Capitalism, where he attempts to cut through the noise and describe the world as it is while providing answers to some of the toughest questions in finance and economics. He is also the author of a number of books, one of the most popular being Pragmatic Capitalism, What Every Investor Needs to Know About Money and Finance. Cullen is a macro expert with primary skills in global macro portfolio construction, quantitative risk management, monetary economics, financial accounting and behavioural finance. In this interview, we discuss the current macro backdrop in stocks, the precarious situation with US house prices, how the modern monetary system works and how individuals can avoid thinking short term. Cullen's insights are second to none. Enjoy. Cullen, great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Where are you uh, calling from today? We are in San Diego, California. Wow. I think it's the first person we've had from San Diego. We've started to get into the turning autonomous now. What's it like there in, in San Diego? Um, <laughs> well, I, I, so I actually grew up in Washington, D.C., so I, I do remember what um, real weather is like. It, <laughs> it doesn't change much here, honestly, which is kind of... Really? I mean, it's the seasons that exist. Probably. I mean, in my, it's certainly the best climate in the United States, but it's sort of yeah. Mediterranean-like, so very, very predictable it gets to, you know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit here on occasion in August, September, and people lose their minds. I mean, that's the temperature differential that we're talking about. So when I worked in, uh, at Merrill Lynch in Washington, DC, I remember, I mean, DC is a swampy mess during the summertime. So I remember back during the summertime there, it would be a hundred degrees with a hundred percent humidity. And I'm working in a suit and walking out of the office was like, you know, walking into, you know, a steam room. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. We had a pretty hot summer here and um, nobody has any aircon. Well, I mean, some of the offices do, but typically houses don't have any aircon. So it, it was very tough for a lot, a lot of people over the summer here. Yeah, well, gosh, I mean, you guys, the the whole energy, we'll kind of get into that a little bit today, but the yeah. whole energy situation is, um, man, that's a... Pretty dire. That's a, a ripple in all of this that I don't think a lot of people you know, needed on top of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely not. Uh, it doesn't seem, yeah, things are just getting uh, exponentially worse. It seems at the moment. Isn't it great? Yeah. Very uh, interesting time to chat about the macro as well, because it's become so important over the last sort of, well, the last two years. So, um, which of course is, you know, one of your really big focus areas and it's great to have you on the show. Talk about it. So I thought we could just start there. Like, 
where are we at at the moment and, and where do you think we're going? Gosh, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm, um, I think I'm fairly well known for being generally very optimistic and I'm, I feel as close to the last time I was really, really negative was the years running up to the financial crisis. And I was, um, I was negative really early, I think. I mean, 2005 ish, 2006 ish was when I really started to see some problems, especially in the US real estate market and just the frothiness that was going on, some of the instability in the underlying economy that ended up getting much worse than I actually expected it to be. I didn't expect the financial crisis to be nearly as bad as it ended up being. But today's environment has a lot of weird similarities, just in the sense that you've had big asset price booms that are now being counteracted by very aggressive central bank policy. And I think one of the things that's very similar is that you've had this sort of inflation scare, a lot of which has been goods-based, commodities-based, that is, again, reminiscent a bit of the 2008 scenario, where I don't know if you remember, but oil prices went up to $150 in oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, the summer of 2008. And everyone, you know, as the Fed and a lot of central banks were sitting around wondering if we were going to get this big inflation problem when the underlying risk was really the opposite. And it wasn't until demand really cratered in the fall and, and early 2009 that people really realized the, the extent of the debt deflation risk that was going on. And today's a different dynamic because COVID was so unusual and we have a lot of different variables at play. I mean, the, the fiscal stimulus response to COVID made the inflation situation very different. So you do have a real underlying inflation trend, but the, the big problem now, and this is, you know, it's a bit different in the United States because I think this is going to be a bit more demand driven, but the, the housing market in the United States is very, very worrisome for me right now because the, the underlying math is just very worrisome on where interest rates are. And the Fed's move has been so fast, so aggressive. Kathy Jones from Charles Schwab had this great chart on Twitter the other day. I can shoot it over to you for your show notes. But uh, it showed that this is basically the fastest uh, set of rate hikes that the Fed has ever implemented. And so this move off of zero to they're technically at around 3% right now, but really the market is pricing in like a 4% overnight rate. That is a gigantic move in terms of coming off of zero Going from zero to four is a much bigger move, for instance, than going from four to eight. People think in terms of, of nominal numbers, but really it's the base effect of where you started and coming off of zero and going to four has a much bigger impact on the economy than going from four to eight, even though they're the same nominal rate change, because the starting point is so much more impactful because you're coming off of this, this point where a lot of people, especially in the United States, they were sort of locked into very low rates or the, the you could say that the debt markets were very, the broader debt markets were really structured for this very low rate, low inflation environment. And a lot of people were very over levered into this low rate environment where the economy now, I literally don't think that the financialized economies that we have now can operate with very, very high interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so, especially when you start doing the math on mortgages in the United States, the numbers are just really ugly with where house prices are. And I don't see how something can't give at some point. You know, so the, the basic math on this is that 
uh, median incomes over the last three years have only increased about 15%, but house prices went up almost 50% and mortgage rates doubled. And so when you do the math on that, what basically happened is the percentage of income that has to go towards a mortgage now is almost 50% of median income compared to 27% in 2019. So you've had this, people who are taking out new mortgages, they have to be diverting huge amounts of consumption away from other goods and services just to service their mortgage. And this assumes that you can even qualify for the mortgage. I mean, the down payment now on houses, the median sales price uh, is equivalent to a $90,000 down payment versus $60,000 just three years ago. So the where given where home prices are, and home prices in the United States really haven't started to move all that much. We're starting to see some some month over month declines, but nothing really significant yet. And so I think something has to give, whether it's going to be I assume probably a combination of falling prices and falling interest rates at some point. But I think the Fed has created a really unstable environment here. And you're even seeing a lot of this ripple through the global economy because obviously the dollar is the, you know, the most important global currency and the dollar funding markets are so essential for the smooth functioning of the global economy. And when you have rates being jacked up the way they are, that has a ripple effect through the entire global economy. And so we're seeing that, you know, not that the Fed is necessarily the cause of things like the volatility in the British pound in the last few weeks, but it's certainly a contributing factor. And so it worries me. The Fed is being very, very aggressive. I personally think they're massively overreacting to the risk of a sustained sort of 1970s inflation or or a hyperinflation and that the risk of a real big slowdown is increasing. And then how do you think this plays out, given this is where we're at now? Does the economy have to break before the Fed makes change? That's what it seems like. And they seem to be explicitly saying that to some degree, because I mean, the, I'm making these three-minute money videos now, and I jokingly said in my last one that um, the, the Fed said the, the quiet part out loud in their last meeting, you know, they, they came out and they explicitly said that they were going to basically target rising unemployment to measure whether or not, you know, their policy stance is too aggressive, which is an incredibly bizarre thing to say, given that they have a dual mandate of maintaining full employment and price stability. And they're, they're explicitly saying now that they're going to abandon one of their mandates in order to make sure that inflation goes down. And, you know, to some degree, I'm sympathetic with this view because I, you know, if I'm wrong and inflation really is in this sort of runaway, you know, escape velocity scenario, then the Fed is obviously acting in a very prudent manner. I don't know. When I look at a lot of the forward looking data, my worry here is that what they tend to do is they tend to look at a lot of rear view mirror data. They tend to be very labor focused. So they're focusing on the unemployment rate and labor markets. And this is part of why they were late to raise rates is because they wanted to see that the unemployment rate had fallen to 4%. And by the time that data came to fruition in late 2021, well, the inflation cat was already out of the bag. And so this is their tendency, though. They tend to have a a very data-dependent focus, and they're, they're waiting on this data to confirm some sort of view. Whereas 
you know, people like us, we're looking at the financial markets. I'm looking at commodities that are down 25%. And, you know, when you start looking at real price surveys, the real time manufacturing surveys, things like that, you know, even the equity markets are screaming at, at everybody that there is a real risk of a, not necessarily a deflation, but certainly a disinflation becoming the dominant trend here. And so it's a little confusing for me. I understand that they want to ensure that they're going to snuff out inflation, but the, the move has been so fast, so aggressive. I mean, the math on mortgages in the United States didn't really work at 5%. The mortgage rate is now at 7.1%, which means that the, the math there is just, it's totally broken. I don't know how, I really don't know how, how anybody is borrowing at these rates. And once you start getting, I mean, for people that, you know, have adjustable rate mortgages. I know this is a much bigger issue in, you know, where you guys are. It's a big issue in Canada. A lot of foreign markets have, you know, adjustable rate mortgages or two to five year terms on their mortgages. This becomes a really, really big issue in places like that. And so a lot of this seems untenable. And I'm having a very hard time seeing how 2023, given where interest rates are, I'm having a really hard time seeing how 2023 isn't just going to be a cascade of really horrible housing news. And that's just very, very worrisome because housing is the backbone of the economy. It's the backbone of fixed private investment across the economy. And when you break fixed private investment, you essentially break the economy or you at least bring it to such a slowdown that it makes growth just, I mean, you have to get some sort of extraordinary exogenous growth out of some other sector, which I don't see where that's going to come in part because, again, the debt markets are are basically freezing up and causing all sorts of problems in things like, you know, taking risk for venture capital or private equity. So there's this knock-on effect across the whole rest of the economy where it's very hard to put together super optimistic scenarios until either house prices fall a decent amount or interest rates come back in or some combination of the two where you get more of an equilibrium, especially in the housing market, where people can then afford to really you know, take on a mortgage and invest in the homes and new construction begins. But it's going to be a process because especially with housing, housing is a big, big, slow moving animal. I mean, it, 2006, it took two, three years for the 2006 housing peak to actually turn into a material economic slowdown. Wow. So this could, could potentially last a lot longer. Yeah, it's, it's, more, um, it's more reminiscent of, if we're comparing this to past recessions, this one feels like it could be kind of more of a slow grinding sort of recession, sort of akin to like the early 2000s recession where a lot of this is the, the natural function of we had such a big boom coming off of COVID that the markets and the economy now have to digest a lot of that. It's almost like we, you know, we ate too much and now we're sitting around and we're digesting this meal and it's just, it's going to take a long time to pass it. And so that's kind of where we're at. So, um, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to sound so negative. I, uh, I don't like being negative. I really, people have jokingly started calling me zero hedge on Twitter. Um, in reference to Zero Hedge, the the perma bear account, but um, I don't like being like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard in this environment, I suppose. And it, I think it's, the problem is, is that people have been used to 
things just recovering quite quickly, which makes it all, all the more difficult. Yeah, they're used to a very fast policy response and, and things kind of being propped up by whether it's fiscal policy responses or, or the Federal Reserve. And the, the Fed has been very clear that they're not going to respond with anything you know, stimulative. And fiscal policy is, is really dead in the water, at least in the United States for a while, because they also want to be very clear that inflation is behind us before they, you know, they risk, I think, uh, being removed from office yeah. due to the inflation worries. And obviously something that's massively at the center of this is the dollar and how that's been impacting globally, you know, uh, different, different markets. What, what is the global sort of dollar cycle and how does it affect the global economy? Well, the, the dollar is the most important reserve currency. So there are, there are technically lots of reserve currencies, but the dollar is the one that is the most important, especially in, in funding markets, in large part because the, the U.S. financial system is really one of the, the more developed financial systems. And the U.S. economy is just so big as a percentage of, of global trade and, and the global economy in general. So Foreigners use a lot of dollars just by virtue of the, the dollar, you know, having these unique characteristics. And, and that's just, it's super important in terms of not just the, the macroeconomic cycle, but also the, the policy cycle. Because in essence, what the Fed does, it doesn't just impact domestic policy. The Fed has this sort of, it's the paradox of being the reserve currency in that the, the domestic monetary policy has a big, big foreign impact. For any country that is using dollar funding markets, they are implicitly reliant on, on U.S. monetary policy to a large degree, U.S. funding markets. So interest rates in the United States have an outsized impact on, on foreign markets because of that. And there is this you know, sort of cyclical trend in a lot of this where you tend to see you know, for instance, right now the dollar is surging against basically everything else, which is generally consistent with an environment where it's becoming increasingly difficult to obtain dollars. The funding dollar funding markets are tightening up and foreigners want more dollars and they're not able to get enough basically right now. And they're in some markets having trouble borrowing or even obtaining them in the first place. And so you're getting this big currency ripple effect through what the Fed is doing to some degree. And the surging dollar is, frankly, it's, it's not great for, for all these foreign economies because you know, it's, it just tends to be consistent with economic slowdown and tightening of the credit markets in general. And so um, the Fed is, to some degree, exacerbating a lot of this, which is, it's worrisome because you're, you're not just slowing the the domestic economy, you're having this sort of boomerang effect where the Fed is also slowing a lot of the global economy, which you could argue in a lot of ways in the sort of interconnected economy that we have today causes, if not more problems, as many problems as causing problems in the, the US mortgage market, for instance. Yeah. And so maybe um, a good segue now is to just let's, let's get, get in deep of macroeconomics and uh, try and like tell the audience, our audience, that how, how this has all played out and how things work. So I know this is something you focus on a lot. You've written a few books on it. So I thought we could start with pragmatic capitalism. Um, and can you explain to us how the modern monetary system works? <laughs> um, I mean, if you have if you have five or six hours to spare, <laughs> um, I could go through the whole system with you. 
Um, no, I mean, it's um, so the the component of the book that explains essentially the the guts of the really the plumbing of the financial system. And I started from a very sort of first principles perspective, trying to understand what are the institutions really and, and what is money sort of basic questions that are actually very, very complex. And in terms of how the financial system works, well, the modern financial system really is structured primarily around its banking systems. And so banks are, are very unique in the modern monetary system in that the most modern governments have essentially outsourced their fiat currency creation to banks. You know, we call banks credit issuers, but really banks create loans and loans create deposits. And deposits are functionally money for any practical sense of the word in that they are the dominant medium of exchange that people utilize in their everyday purchases. And so the way the system is structured is sort of a, a dual tier system in most economies in the, in all of Europe and in the United States, at least you have really two banking systems. You have a banking system for consumers and then you have a banking system for the banks. And the banking system for the banks is what in the United States we call the reserve system, which is essentially where banks will transfer interbank payments. So the simplest way to understand that is that when you bank at bank A and somebody else banks at bank B and you guys transfer a payment, they do so using this second tier interbank market, the reserve system. And that's a banking system that is essentially controlled by the central bank. The central bank operates as the, the issuer of reserves. And so they are really trying to smooth and maintain the functioning of the, the dominant primary system, which is the, the banking system that the rest of us use. And that's why, to a large degree, they've become so involved over the course of the last 15 years is because when the, when the primary banking system became dysfunctional back in 2008, when we had the credit bust, the central banks had to step in and act essentially as the market makers to make sure that you still had smooth functioning of the interbank system. Because what tends to happen in these sorts of scenarios is bank A stops trusting bank B and then you get a Lehman Brothers sort of scenario where the bankers all sort of look at each other and say, well, we don't trust your bank balance sheet. And so we're not willing to settle a payment with you today. And you need a, almost a third party intermediary, a central bank to come in and say, hey, guys, you, we both know about you know, the details of your balance sheets. You don't have to worry about this. And that's a lot of what the, the central banks end up doing in periods like this. It's actually their dominant role in everyday services in terms of transferring payments. They help transfer trillions of payments in the interbank system every day, which is in terms of what central banks do, it's something that is probably their most important role, but doesn't get a lot of airtime compared to, you know, a lot of the the things that the financial media focuses on in terms of like interest rate changes and quantitative easing and whatnot. But that's sort of a a high level, very general overview of the way that the monetary system is structured though. Yeah, I mean, that's great to understand. And how um, you had a recent tweet that sort of went over this, and it, it was just taking us through how money printing and the Fed balance sheet and asset swaps are related, because I think it's relevant to what's happening right now. Yeah, so I think, you know, the old school sort of view on a lot of this is that the central bank prints money. And I think the more useful way to understand this is that 
money is kind of a messy term. I mean, we, we technically, we consider reserves as money, but reserves really can't be utilized by anybody outside of that second tier banking system. Banks are the ones that, that really utilize reserves. And so when the central bank creates a lot of reserves, what they're really doing through a policy like quantitative easing is they're technically creating reserves in the banking system and they're taking out treasury bonds. And the, the interesting thing and I think the big lesson from 2008 versus 2020 is that you can better understand where the real money printing comes from by looking at the government's consolidated balance sheet. And so when you understand what quantitative easing is as sort of this like asset swap where the central bank is exchanging one very safe asset for another very safe government asset, well, is that technically money printing? It's a really, a, it's more akin to swapping a checking account with a savings account, in my view. Whereas government deficit spending, if you think of this from a, a first orders um, perspective, what really happens is when the treasury bond is created, that's the result of the government spending more than it taxed. And so they're, they're literally printing a treasury bond, a new financial asset that is a new net financial asset for the private sector. That, to me, is much more akin to money printing, whereas the central bank, when they operate something like quantitative easing, they're really coming in after the fact, and they're coming in and they're exchanging that treasury bond that was printed for then essentially a deposit. And so they're changing, I guess what you could say is the moneyness of the item, but the real money printing occurred when the deficit spending occurred. And I think that's the big lesson from 2008 versus 2020 is that the 2020 fiscal policy impact, the government spending impact was much more impactful on inflation because you had real money printing going on. You had a real asset uh, expansion through the fiscal side of the balance sheet. Whereas in 2008, you had almost a very similar type of policy response from the central banks, but you had very little inflation in large part because the fiscal policies were not that big as a percentage of the of the overall economy. Whereas in the United States, for instance, we spent $7 trillion deficits um, over the course of two years, which was a, a gigantic amount of money to be spending. Whereas in 2008, we spent about $800 billion on the on the recovery package, which, you know, again, not a small number, but nothing in comparison to what we did in 2020. And I think the the lesson from that is that fiscal policy and this big government expansion can cause big inflation. And with that in mind, do you believe inflation we're seeing today is primarily cyclical? So, you know, based more on the, the uh, fiscal stuff that the, the bank's doing or, or structural due to other things happening in the economy? This is a great question. I don't really know, to be honest. It's messy. I think that there's a lot of, I mean, there's still a lot of strange stuff going on. I mean, for instance, you guys have a whole other scenario there with the, the oil catastrophe and, you know, the dependence on Russia for oil. That obviously is not just, you know, a government, you know, spending problem. That's a, that's a real supply side issue. And there's a lot of that that's still going on across various sectors. I mean, I have two young girls and we are, we're still having trouble getting infant formula. So there's still, there's real supply side issues that are still going on across a lot of the broader economy. So it's a mix. I, I certainly don't want to imply that, you know, the, the only causality of all this is government spending because COVID really did have a, 
a huge impact on supply chains. And we obviously shut down the, a lot of economies for a long time to try to snuff out you know, the pandemic. And you're still recovering from that to a large degree. But the, the worry going forward, I think, is that supply chains really are, are healing. And the demand side seems to be weakening to a large degree now, especially when you start looking at, if you track things like, uh, like freight shipping and, uh, you know, FedEx came out two weeks ago and said that the global economy demand is really slowing. You're starting to get various different channels through which it looks like the demand side is really starting to slow down. And so my big worry here is that the Fed is very worried that this is some sort of like a wage price spiral akin to the 1970s or, a, you know, the 70s to a large degree were a oil-based supply side problem. And the Fed responded very aggressively, essentially causing recessions there to try to snuff it out. And, you know, it's, it's difficult here because the in Europe, this probably is a bit more akin to the 1970s than the, the situation in the USA. I think in the USA, this is much more akin to probably a 2008. We don't quite have the same degree of problems that we did leading up to 2008. But I think this is more akin, at least in the United States, to a, a 2008 sort of uh, risk where the, the higher risk is a disinflation or a falling rate of inflation or perhaps even a deflation. We're likely to get at least a, a lot of deflationary readings in money supply measures in Q1 and Q2 of 2023. So it's, to me, the risks look to the downside in terms of where inflation risk is. And the Fed seems to think that the risk is still to the upside, which is why they're positioned so aggressively. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And then a lot of the people I follow and you know, other people we've talked to on the podcast, it's believed, they've been talking about this belief that, that you know, after a period, this period of tightening, which has gone on longer than a lot of people expected, uh, but you know, it's going to go on for a bit further and then we'll go through a period of quantitative easing again to stimulate the economy. Um, and this would be, you know, potentially a, a turning point for, for risk assets because, you know, you're seeing stimulation again. Um, is that likely to play out? Do you think that is what's going to happen? Because that's what people are sort of assuming will play out. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I used to say back when interest rates were at zero that the Fed really didn't have any other choice because they, don't, they didn't have any other tools except changing the balance sheet. The balance sheet was their primary tool. Whereas the interest rate environment now is just, it is completely different than anything we've seen in a really long time where they actually, you know, the old joke is that the, back when interest rates were zero, the, we would all joke around that the Fed had to raise rates so that they could then have ammo to be able to fight a recession that um, they were going to inevitably have to combat. And so in this weird way, you know, they raise rates, which causes a recession, but then they have ammo to actually be able to fight the recession. And that's kind of the scenario we're in here where they now actually have a lot of wiggle room to be able to ease substantially. And so I don't, I don't know. I, who knows what this environment is so crazy. I mean, the, the Bank of England, obviously, last night announced some easing measures, which I think was super shocking. So given their 
their inability to correctly predict inflation. The Fed keeps saying they won't ease until you know they're really certain that inflation has stopped. But I, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if they had to do an emergency rate cut at some point in the next six to 12 months because things are getting a lot choppier than they expect. And so yeah. I don't expect the balance sheet to necessarily be their big um, go-to, but I would not... Yeah, I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I would certainly predict that at some point in the next 10 years, we're going to see either zero interest rates again, or we're going to see very, very low interest rates again. Yeah. And that's because that's the only way really to drive growth. Yeah. I think that the, you know, kind of going back to the basic math on the the US mortgage market, for instance, I mean, gosh, I mean, wait till wait till some of these resets you know, kick in across all of the the global debt markets, I think central banks are going to start realizing that you just can't get enough growth with interest rates at, you know, four, five, six, seven percent. And that the way these economies have evolved into these highly, highly financialized economies, it to a large degree requires a very low rate of, of interest. And can you tell us what happens when, when interest rate risk evolves into credit risk? Yeah, so that's kind of what we're starting to see now, where the, and this is the ramification of the, the interest rate channel from monetary policy, where the Fed is raising interest rates to try to slow down the economy. And what this ultimately does is it, it flows through the credit channels and it, it causes things like inverted yield curves and credit spreads to start blowing out. And you're seeing, you know, high yield bonds are, are now back to yielding nine, 10%. And so what we, what we've experienced in the last sort of 12 to 18 months was interest rate risk or duration risk, meaning that the rising interest rates caused, you know, for instance, the principal value of bonds to decline. Whereas now, what I expect to start to sort of materialize is more of a, a credit risk environment. The duration risk has been priced in, but now the duration risk creates credit risk. It mucks up the credit markets in such a way that now refinancing at these higher interest rates, it creates a lot of credit risk. And so things like junk bonds and um, even investment grade bonds to some degree, they become riskier because of what the Fed has done and what the, the interest rate has essentially done. So you're getting this evolution of the market moving from repricing government bonds now to more sort of jarring moves in other credit markets, which is, it's the evolution of of how the overnight rate impacts other interest rate markets and especially the lower quality markets. So it's a it's a repricing and it's a worrisome sign because typically when you start seeing credit spreads blowing out the way they are, that's indicative not really of a of a high inflation problem. It's a it's indicative or consistent with more of a deflationary environment and a big economic slowdown. And just to summarize on this sort of macro overview, in terms of risk assets, do you think um, there's another significant leg lower? And maybe, you know, next year is not going to be great either. Maybe some sideways movement before some, some sort of trigger 
potentially the Fed, you know, eventually starting to ease again? I don't know. I, I try to always tell people that the, for instance, the stock market, in my view, is something close to like an 18 year instrument. So I always try to tell people, hey, you know, you should, if you're going to buy stocks, you should have an inherently long term view to begin with, you know, but yeah, we all, we all live in the short term. And so I kind of understand that, you know, it, you can't just turn a blind eye to your, your stock portfolio all the time because it creates a lot of, um, uncertainty in your overall portfolio. But it's hard for me to envision a scenario where the stock market does really well in the next 18 months, just given the underlying macro landscape. And I don't think the problem really is that the, the housing market stuff, it hasn't really come to fruition. I mean, house prices in the US really haven't started to move, which is almost, to me, it's almost the most worrisome thing because if house prices really start to surprise to the downside. A lot of people think that house prices just can't fall because of, you know, shortages of supply and relative rents and things like that. But I don't really, I don't really think that's true. I think you could easily get 10 to 15% of downside in, in housing. And there's very reasonable arguments for bigger, bigger moves than that. And if those materialize, well, that just has a huge impact on consumer balance sheets, and it's going to have a big ripple effect through the, the whole economy. So I don't know. A lot of this, this move feels sort of exhausted in the short term, but um, you know, we tend to get Q4 tends to be a pretty good quarter for the stock market. So I don't know what's going to happen in the, the super short term, but I think that I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in the equity market, especially in credit markets, junk bond markets over the course of the next 12 months. And I don't see, given the policy stance and the, the housing price situation, I don't see how a lot of this resolves itself in the short term. So I think there's, I think the probability of some tough sledding in the next 12 to 18 months remains fairly high. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a fair outlook. Uh, given where we are. Yeah, but going back to what I was mentioning, I mean, if you're if you're somebody who has that long-term perspective, I mean, there's a lot of good news in this. It, the weird thing is that, for instance, people with a super short-term perspective, I mean, you can buy US Treasury bills for almost 4%. You can lock in almost a 4% rate for 10 years. That is That was almost unheard of on a risk-free asset for a very long time. So for people with a fairly short time horizon, I mean, Hey, the, you know, the 4% withdrawal rule, which is kind of the old school, you know, traditional financial planning metric. I mean, that's totally viable again. And especially if inflation comes down, I mean, if you can lock in 4%, Hey, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. And if you're, if you've got a longer time horizon, you know, adding the equities here consistently, even if the, even if you think they're going to fall another, you know, 25 or 30%, I mean, Hey, I could end up being totally wrong. It wouldn't certainly wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong about macroeconomics. So, but if that's the case and you've got these, you know, thinking about things over proper time horizons, you know, these are opportunities too. So I don't want to, yeah, yeah. you don't want to get frozen into sitting, leaving all your money in a bank account. Yeah. So let's move on to um, some portfolio management uh, questions. So what is modern portfolio construction? Well, the traditional sort of modern portfolio theory perspective is what like Harry Markowitz would have called a mean variance optimization approach, which is essentially you're trying to optimize risk for return. And 
I approach all of this from a, a sort of a different perspective. I'm more of a behavioralist. So I tend to, to come at all of this from more of like a financial planning perspective where, of course, we're trying to optimize return per unit of risk in a sort of traditional measure. But the reality is that generally when you're taking on risk in, in instruments like the stock market, for instance, more risk generally equals more return. It's very, very difficult to find those metrics by which you can actually optimize return per unit of risk. And so this sort of uh, modern portfolio theory approach, to me, it's always created a lot of conflicts of interest in that a lot of the times when people are trying to generate more return, they're really just essentially generating more risk. And what this does at the end of the day is it creates more behavioral risk, which especially in environments like right now, you don't really realize this until the bear market comes and you realize that, oh, you know, you, you weren't actually generating better risk adjusted returns. You were, you were actually just taking more risk. And now you're realizing that what that results in is a lot of behavioral risk. And to me, that's the biggest uh, variable, the most important variable in portfolio construction. You have to obviously build a diversified portfolio. A lot of those sort of, you know, basic understandings are super important. But to me, behavior is really, it's the biggest component in all of this because if you build what you think is the perfect risk optimized portfolio and you can't behaviorally stay with it, that portfolio serves you way worse than the the sort of less efficient portfolio that you end up actually being able to stay with because that's the that's the biggest risk in portfolio management is people who get into this sort of gambling mentality where they're moving all in and all out of the markets all the time and what typically happens is they end up essentially buying high and selling low and rinse washing and repeating that process over time as they they let their emotions uh, sort of run wild and so my approach to portfolio construction is more of a, I mean, I literally like to call portfolios savings portfolios because from a really proper economics perspective, none of us are technically investors in the proper sense. Investment spending is really spending for future production. Corporations do that when they go out and they build factories, for instance. What the rest of us are doing is we're earning some income and we're saving that income and we need to allocate that income to certain financial assets to protect us from, you know, whether it's instability at a in a, a short-term nominal sense or whether it's inflation or or whatever it might be, depending on our financial goals. And so I literally like to take this back to the perspective that when we allocate our assets, we are literally allocating into a savings portfolio. And so I like to think that my paper on modern portfolio construction takes a lot of this back to more of a a behavioral perspective and a financial planning perspective rather than what a lot of the asset management business does, which is essentially just trying to generate the best risk-adjusted returns all the time. Yeah. And so how can individuals avoid thinking short-term? It's hard. I think that, um, you know, I just wrote a new paper called All Duration Investing. And I think that, um, you know, the, the hardest part about navigating life and the financial markets is that we live in this sort of multi-temporal world where we have lots of different time horizons. We live in the short term, but really we plan for lots of different time horizons in the future. And whether that's retirement or you know our children's college planning or 
you want to buy a car in the next few years, or you want to you know keep a down payment for a house uh, in the next five years. Not that anybody can afford a house anymore, but you know you have all these different time horizons, and arguably our most important time horizon is our our sort of monthly mortgage or rent uh, time horizon, our monthly credit card statement time horizon, and so. When you look at all this stuff out across all the different time horizons that we exist over, it's perfectly fine to think in the short term to some degree. But I very much like this concept of all duration investing because what I essentially did was actually tried to calculate the duration of all financial assets. So the stock market, like I said earlier, has an 18-year duration in my model. The, The aggregate bond market has about a five-year time horizon. Uh, junk bond has about a nine-year time horizon, and what I, I so I did that across all different financial assets. Gold and commodities have about thirty to forty-year time horizons, and so you can do this across all these different instruments. And then you can build a portfolio where, if you have some estimation of your future liabilities, you can actually match those certain assets with certain liabilities, so that you're covering all of your time horizons. And the the sort of nice thing about this is that you end up with a strategy where you actually have buckets for all of these time horizons where from a behavioral perspective, you have money for the short term, but you also have money for the medium term and the long term. And so you end up with a portfolio where when your long-term buckets like the stock market are down a lot, well, you're able to, to compartmentalize those assets. You're able to look at those assets and say, this is fine because those, that's my long-term retirement bucket. Of course, it goes down sometimes because that's what those assets do. But those are long-term assets. I need to just think long-term about those specific assets. And the, the problem that a lot of people end up with is that they end up with this um, sort of mishmash of assets where, especially when you build something like a, you know, an, an overly simplified portfolio, say, for instance, a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, well, you don't have any certainty in a portfolio like that because if you own like Vanguard's 60-40 mutual fund, that asset, when the equity piece, when the stock market component of that portfolio goes down in value, well, technically you own some treasury bills in that portfolio, but you don't have any liquidity in the treasury bills because the equity piece, it pulled the whole portfolio down. And so when you break these things out and you actually apply them in a portfolio construction sense across specific time horizons, you can avoid getting caught in the trap of thinking short term. You also can avoid getting into the trap of thinking too long term because that's the that's the alternative. Is that especially during big bull markets, people will start you know they'll start questioning the validity of owning short term assets and they'll start saying, "Well, why am I not a hundred percent stocks?" And of course, the problem with that is you realize why you shouldn't be a hundred percent stocks during bear markets, and it's because there is a heck of a lot of principal risk in long-duration assets like that. Yeah. And I think something related that I'd love to hear your, your insights on is, is taking us through risk-adjusted returns and real, real returns. Yeah, so risk-adjusted return, I mean, gosh, in a, in a sort of traditional portfolio sense, I mean, risk-adjusted returns are essentially trying to quantify the, the unit of risk that you're taking per Per return. And so the traditional metrics there are sort of like the, the sharp ratio or the, the Sortino ratio. And you're, you're really trying to quantify 
I mean, in the traditional sense, it's essentially how much volatility is there in the portfolio uh, relative to the return. And so something like the stock market tends to be very volatile, uh, tends to generate higher returns in the long term. And people traditionally try to sort of then pick the components of the stock market where you can optimize that. In terms of, of real returns, I tend to think that it can be somewhat counterproductive to try to optimize for risk-adjusted returns because it's just very hard to decipher or to uncover the components of the market where you're going to be able to optimize risk. To me, the, the stock market tends to just all be one sort of homogeneous, very risky instrument. And to try to figure out, you know, for instance, in the the S&P 500, which 100 components are going to be the least risky at any given point? Well, that's just, it's almost an impossible endeavor because the economy is just way too dynamic. The underlying instruments are way too dynamic to really understand. And so I tend to default to a view of it's better to to own the the haystack rather than trying to find the needle, as John Bogle used to say. But um, the much more important component, the thing that you can really control is your real, real return. And that's your really your after-tax, after-fee contr- your uh, return. Because those are, the, those are the variables that investors can really explicitly control. You can control how much you pay in fees, and you can, to a large degree, control how much in taxes you're going to pay. And those variables, I mean, they can end up adding you know, 1%, 2 3% to your annualized returns when you control them well. And so, to me... It's almost better to focus on controlling those things and then letting the 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 risk adjusted returns just sort of do whatever they're going to do because you can't really control that variable to a large degree. So let's uh, talk about discipline funds. What is discipline based investing? So to me, discipline based investing is a it's a behavioral approach to investing where you're really trying to apply a process, a systematic process to portfolio management where you're really trying to limit the behavioral mistakes that you're likely to make. And this this involves generally trying to take yourself out of the game to a large degree. It involves systematic processes of portfolio construction where you adhere to a process and a system rather than what a lot of people end up doing is they end up letting their emotions control their portfolio and when you can build something that is systematic and something that is more process driven, you can better control your behavior because you, to a large degree, investors are their own worst enemy across time. We will tend to make all the wrong decisions at all the worst times. And our behavioral biases just, you know, they have such a grip on us, especially during times like right now when things sort of get really uncertain and really scary that having a very disciplined process-based approach to portfolio construction, it's very comforting because you're removing a lot of your emotion and you're letting, you're letting a, the system or the process kind of guide how you're going to allocate assets. And, and this kind of harkens back to what I was talking about before, where to a large degree, it's about controlling what you can control and starting from a more of a financial planning-based focus where when you build things out across that sort of temporal approach that I was discussing earlier, this sort of all duration approach, well, in doing so, you create a process. You create a very systematic process where kind of like if anyone knows what a bond ladder is, a bond ladder operates in a very discipline-based investing methodology because 
what it does is it creates a very rigid system for managing that specific component of a portfolio where, for instance, if you bought um, $100,000 of bonds and you allocated $10,000 across each of the 10 time horizons from one to 10 years, you can manage that portfolio where every year you're essentially just rolling over the bonds. And that creates a very discipline-based investing methodology because it is based on an underlying system that is consistent with your the time horizons over which you need that money, for instance. And so the all-duration approach sort of takes that same sort of understanding, same sort of approach, and creates a process by which we can look at our assets, understand the underlying time horizons, and then apply a process to that over which we're hopefully meeting our financial goals, but more importantly, really trying to throttle our own emotions so that we're not doing this sort of uh, thing where we end up almost treating our portfolio more like it's like a gambling account where people have a tendency to sort of get frozen in scary times and then, um, you know, get over optimistic in good times. And so can you take us through your ETF and like how it incorporates this sort of approach and, and also what the problem is with today's multi-asset index funds? Yeah. So the, the ETF itself is a multi-asset stock bond ETF. And it's really what it does in terms of this sort of all duration approach is it sort of fills that 10 to 15 year time horizon. So it's, it's not super long term. It's not super short term. And the blend of, of stocks and bonds creates this sort of intermediate time horizon to some degree. But the, the problem that I've always had with multi-asset index funds that I never really understood is that you know, for instance, with a 60-40 stock bond fund, well, 60-40 has a lot of great components. It's very diversified. It tends to be low fee. It tends to be very tax efficient. So I don't want to bag on 60-40 too much. But the, the thing I never understood with it was that when you actually look at the underlying uh, market capitalization of the stock versus bond market, well, 60-40 doesn't actually apply a passive approach. What it does is it always deviates from the underlying market caps. And so it's really interesting when you look at the global financial asset portfolio, for instance, the relative market caps of stocks versus, versus bonds, it is super dynamic across time. And it tends to ebb and flow. For instance, with stocks in the early 90s, they were about 35% of global stocks and bonds on a relative basis. They grew into 50% by 1999. And then the NASDAQ bubble busted them back down to 35% of total assets. Then the, they exploded back up to 50% in 2008. And then they busted back down to 35%. There's this very consistent ebb and flow in the market capitalization of stocks relative to bonds across time. So when you're rebalancing back to a 60% weight, well, what you're doing is you're not only actively deviating away from the market caps a lot, but what you're also doing is from a behavioral perspective, you're creating a lot of behavioral risk at some of the very worst behavioral times. Because for instance, in a 2008, you're rebalancing back to this 60% weight right when equity markets are riskier on average. And so it's kind of a double whammy because wow. not only are you rebalancing back to a fixed weight that is inherently riskier because the equity market generates over 85% of the volatility in a portfolio to begin with, but you're also rebalancing back to this riskier component that on a cyclical basis from the market cap perspective 
it becomes much riskier because the stock market expands and, and contracts on these very sort of cyclical way. And so what the fund, what our fund does is it counterbalances that to some degree. It, it doesn't actually follow the market caps. Interestingly, it actually does the opposite of what the market caps do. And so when the market caps are 50% of the, at the, the relative basis, the discipline fund ETF is actually going to be underweight equities on average. And so we're, we're taking more of a counter cyclical approach. And what that is really designed to do is not only designed to reduce the duration of the assets a little bit in the, in the all duration model, but it's designed to help people, um, behave a little bit better because what you're doing is you're really throttling the equity market risk. So, and even in a horrible bond year, like a year like this year, it still is very effective because you know, the global stock market as of today is down something like 25%. Yeah. The discipline fund is down about 19% this year, but it's, it's doing what it's designed to do by throttling the equity market risk relative to something like a 60-40 even, or especially an all equity fund. Yeah. Well, Colin, that's, uh, it's been really, really insightful to get all, all that knowledge today. And I'm sure everyone's going to benefit a lot from that. And I'm sure they also want to know where they can go to get more of your insights, look up your ETF, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the company that I run is called Discipline Funds. And uh, but most people probably know me for uh, my book, Pragmatic Capitalism, and the website by the same name. So it's uh, pragcap.com, P-R-A-G-C-A-P.com. That's where I, I write most of my content. I also post uh, our new YouTube channel, 3-Minute Money, the short little sort of educational or or macro-based insight videos on what's going on and talking a lot about the guts of the, the economy. But I've, I've written, I don't know, an embarrassing amount of content on, on pragmatic capitalism over the years. So there's, I don't know, by this point, there's something like 15,000 articles on there, which is a lot more than I ever imagined uh, writing. A lot of writing, Colin. <laughs> yeah, too, too much, too much writing. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't recommend them enough. And I, the three minute videos are, are, are really, really good. It's, it's really nice to have the short bite-sized um, nuggets. Yeah, people don't like to read the, the long form. Con- and I know a lot of the long form content I write about is sort of, it's a little high level kind of wonky stuff. So it's nice to, it's actually fun to do the short videos because I'm. Uh, it's forcing me to sort of consolidate a lot of these concepts into more really concise, understandable topics that I hope the everyday person can better understand to help them just better understand the world of money and uh, and better manage their money. Hopefully, uh, yep, and I think they definitely will after this. <laughs> um, thanks, Colin, and we'll, we'll keep your uh, Twitter handle and. Uh, web, web URL in, in the, the show notes so people can find you there. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Ed. It was great being here. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.